Welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host, Yiming Ha. Today, we welcome as our guest, Professor Kenneth Swope, a professor of history and senior fellow of the Dale Center for the Study of War and Society at the University of Southern Mississippi. Professor Swope is an expert on Chinese military history, particularly Ming military history, and has published numerous monographs, articles, and book chapters on the topic. His major publications include A Dragon's Head and a Serpent's Tail, Ming China and the First Great East Asian War, 1592-1598, The Military Collapse of China's Ming Dynasty, 1618-1644, and On the Trail of the Yellow Tiger, War, Trauma, and Social Dislocation in Southwest China during the Ming-Qing Transition. In addition, he serves as the book review editor for the Journal of Chinese Military History and is a member of the Board of Directors for the Chinese Military History Society. Professor Swope will join us today to talk about military developments and military campaigns in the late Ming and how new scholarship is starting to change our views of that period. Welcome, Professor Swope. Thank you so much for coming to our show. Oh, great, great. I'm glad to be here. I'm very happy to uh, answer questions. And I love talking about Ming history. So, Yes, and I think definitely the Ming, there is a lot to talk about. It's just such a fascinating period in time. So to start off, most scholars of the late Ming, say from the Wanli period onward, tend to emphasize decline and stagnation and that a Ming collapse was inevitable. Yet your research has really complicated these narratives, highlighting not just the Ming's sudden collapse in the early 17th century, but also its military successes in the late 16th century against the Mongols, the Manchus, and even the Japanese in Korea. So I was wondering to start off, if you can say a few words about the field of late Ming history and this general narrative of stagnation and decline. Sure. What's interesting to me is that I do think the standard narrative is getting changed finally a little bit. But definitely when I was first entering the field, which would have been the late 1980s when I was an undergrad, um, early 90s, that stagnation, decline, rise of the Manchus was sort of the hot topic at the time. You know, Fred Wakeman's book had been published in the mid-80s, and Lynn Struve had published her book on the Southern Ming basically within a year of each other. And those two books made a big impact on me. And uh, obviously, I think the book that has had the biggest impact on that narrative in a popular sense, as well as a sort of academic sense in the modern world, is probably Ray Wong's 1587 book. Because that book, you know, was a bestseller in China. It was a bestseller in Taiwan. Anytime you go to bookstores in China, you see it. Oh, Wan Li Shirunian. And random people I talk to in China, like, have read that book. And so that's their picture of the late Ming and of Wan Li. So I think that that really had a profound impact. And, and so people kind of read that. Cambridge History of China, those chapters on that reign were also written by Ray Wong, right? So again, late 80s, that had a profound impact, certainly on the English-speaking world and their perception of the late Ming, because those are sort of seminal works that everybody was reading. And even in one case, somebody in, in a later sort of survey text said, well, it's superfluous to write about the late Ming because Ray Huang has already done it and it's brilliant and we're done with that. People just kind of accepted that and it's still kind of pervasive in textbooks, both kind of general world history textbooks as well as even, you know, Asia surveys and things where people who aren't specialists will just kind of uncritically take that narrative of stagnation and decline and just accept it as, as pure fact. 
but a sort of what happened with me is that I did too, right? I read all this stuff in English and at the time I couldn't read Chinese. So when I started getting into my dissertation research, I was interested in the three great campaigns of the Wan and the Emperor, as you know. And the more I started reading the actual sources, the picture of Wan Li that was emerging and the picture of the Ming military that was emerging was really at variance with that Huang slash stagnation narrative that was out there. And part of that, it wasn't just him creating it, right? I mean, this, the, this one goes back to the founding of the Qing dynasty, really. And we can talk later about why I think that is. But the more I read, the more I was like, well, wait a minute, there's more going on here. And it's pretty interesting. And there was a massive body of primary sources, as you know, that you know people just hadn't done much with. They were there, but people weren't reading them, right? They were reading other things. They weren't interested in military history. And because the Donglin themselves, the Donglin sort of partisans, academy group, whatever you want to call those figures of the late Ming, you know, they and their supporters, allies, children in some cases, were writing a lot of the political history of this period. That kind of what I call the sort of Donglin view of Wan Li and of the late Ming in general became kind of accepted truth to what was going on at the end of the Ming. But there are other narratives, right? And there are other views. And you, when you start digging around, those guys, A, don't come off nearly as squeaky clean as they portray themselves to be. And B, you can see, wait, there were a lot of other significant sort of developments and things going on that make it a much more nuanced kind of picture. And what's been interesting for me subsequent to this is that other scholars, you may be familiar with Harry Miller's work, like being political history and factionalism and things like this, simultaneously working on the Wan Lee reign, but in different areas than me, have come to some of the same conclusions uh, Harriet Zerndorf for a little bit later. And so it's sort of interesting to see this Chinese scholar, Fan Shujer, also in his really excellent biography of Wan, you know, notes his interest in military affairs and connects to Zhang Zhang and stuff. And he was, that biography was very influential when I was writing my dissertation on my own thinking, because he, his was the only one of a number of biographies of Wan Li that came out in the 90s that I thought was really kind of fair and balanced in the sense that it didn't overlook negative aspects of his you know, reign or personality or whatever, but was also more plugged into sort of global history trends and to things that, you know, to a more creative interpretation of what was going on. And it sort of, from my perspective, kind of jived what, what I was reading in the documents for Wan Lee. And so I think now, as we, you know, 30 years down the road from when I was doing that, there are these revised interpretations of the late Ming and stuff that are coming out. And I think some of that's also influenced by the so-called new Qing history, which is, you know, a whole you know, other field in some ways, but certainly connected to the late Ming. And now people are going back and reevaluating the entire Ming and not just as an era of stagnation or xenophobia or things like that, but looking at a lot of the dynamism, you're seeing more and more parallels between Ming and Qing history and institutions and the military, et cetera that are emerging and uh, you know, imperial leadership and the way in which different emperors interacted with their bureaucrats, with their soldiers, with their military commanders, et cetera, is a very promising area of inquiry that now we're, we're opening up with the Ming where before people were doing it for the Qing. But I think it's coming into the Ming sense now as well. Yeah, and as a current graduate student who is working on the Ming, it's very interesting to see a lot of these new scholarship coming out and challenging these older narratives. And I think it's making the field 
bit more interesting than just looking at what they were writing in the 80s and 90s. And now you have all these different perspectives and angles that are coming out. But I think you make a very good point in that the traditional view has been that the Wanli emperor was this person who just doesn't care about affairs of state. He refused to meet with his ministers and courtiers for 20 years. And I think this is still the narrative you find in a lot of general history books, history textbooks, particularly in mainland China. I think a lot of people still have this negative portrayal of Wanli. But in your research on the late Ming military history, You've talked about his interest in the military aspect and how he was very engaged in that. And as you mentioned, other scholars have also started to notice this as well. So can you explain a little bit why was the Wanli Emperor so interested in military affairs and how was his interest manifested? Okay, good question. I think there are a couple of reasons for it. One, I think perhaps first and foremost, is that you know his tutor, Zhang Zhujug, was strongly interested in military affairs. So, you know, from the time Wan Li was very young, this kind of interest in the frontier was inculcated in him. And as some people don't know, right, John came from a military family. His ancestors were actually military officials. And so even though he was a civil official and grand secretary and everything else, he was definitely plugged into kind of military mindset. He made it his business to cultivate good relations with a variety of military officials, you know, Qi Ji Guang and others. And so civil-military relations were extremely important to Zhang Zhujiang in the sense of strengthening the Ming frontier and, you know, supposedly making the army strong and fearsome once again, et cetera, et cetera. This was one of his main goals once he becomes chief grand secretary or, you know, and essentially sort of advisor to Wan Li when Wan Li was a young man, when he ascends the throne, what was he, nine years old? And so I think that's kind of point number one that really had a profound influence on Wan Li. And then I think later, as the kind of factions and things start coalescing at the Ming court, and as there's pushback against Wan Li over the naming of his heir apparent with the Kuobun issue and some of these other things that come up, he sees military affairs as an area in which he can still exercise a bit of agency and not be as constrained by traditions and other bureaucratic hangups in some of the other spheres of governance. And this is manifested in a number of different ways. For one, uh, repeatedly in his reign, he patronizes certain powerful military families or officials, uh, like Big Sword Liu, like the Li family, Li Chengliang, Li Rusong, and his brothers and cousins, etc., Ma Gui, and others. Among the things he does is he appoints them to positions of command. Now, for example, Li Rusong, when they go to suppress the Ningxia Mutiny in 1592, this was the first time in the history of the Ming that a military official had been given the title of Tidu, as like supreme you know, coordinator, uh, military superintendent. And then it becomes sort of standard practice afterwards, after you know, Wan Li does it, that military as opposed to civil officials are getting these appointments. Repeatedly, he ignores impeachments, impeachments of officials. When various military officials are impeached for things, Wan Li often just ignores the charges or dismisses them as being spurious. And you can see this and you can see this in his letters to different officials when they're in Korea, in his communications with uh, Li Hualong and Bojo when they're fighting the uh, Miao rebels down there. And so he's repeatedly kind of inserting himself into these things. He's actively involved in court debates over the military intervention in Korea, over the uh, military affairs in Bojo and in Ningxia, and, and again, later, even uh, late in his reign with the Manchus, right? It's interesting that three of the four commanders that he brings out 
to try to take out Nurhachi are veterans of the war in Korea, right? So he's loyal to these guys to the end. And he's still got an interest in that. I think eventually he gets kind of worn down by all the wrangling that's taking place and gets fed up with it. And Harry Miller argues that's one of the other reasons he uses the eunuchs, uh, the eunuch tax collectors, is because he's just so fed up with the bureaucracy that this becomes this kind of end run around that. And Harry, in particular, argues that Wanli is a really innovative ruler for coming up with this idea. But of course, the eunuchs become vastly unpopular with the literati who write the histories. Now, there's not a lot of evidence that they were harming the people. They were just trying to get revenue from the literati who were hiding their revenue and hiding their money. But I think those are some of the things where Wan Lee is really more forceful and interested, and even towards the end of his reign, because he is sort of involved, pretty involved in the campaign against Nurhachi, at least in getting guys in a position that he thought would be successful. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because scholars often talk about this Jiajing transition where because the Jiajing emperor came from this princely family in the south, he wasn't used to the court in Beijing. So there was this huge change in court culture away from, I think David Robinson calls martial spectacles. But here you have the Wanli emperor still demonstrating his profound interest in military affairs. So I think that also kind of complicates this idea of a Jiajing transition as well. Yeah, I think this, that's one of the things that we also are working towards. It's just hard to get at the personalities of the Ming emperors just because of the way the documents are. And we don't have as much personal writings for them as we do for the Qing emperors, especially the high Qing emperors. You know, we really know what they felt about things because they wrote so much. And yeah. it's there. Whereas the Ming emperors tend to be more ritualized. You're not getting... You sometimes get communications, but after, say, Hongwu and Yongle and stuff like that, you know, the directives, who knows how, how many of the directives are actually written by the emperors, and you're not getting all the stuff with the emperor's handwriting on it and things like that. There are a few cases. I mean, there are some really interesting letters like Wan Li writes to the Korean king, to uh, Song Yingchang, who is the civil official over there and stuff like that. But you don't get the same level of sort of personality doesn't come through as much of the Ming emperors, I think, is maybe the that you do for the Qing, at least some of the main Qing ones, some of the other ones do. You know nothing about some of the other Qing emperors, right? Yeah. Like Tongzhi, like Tongzhi, like who knows what he really thought, right? Because it was all Sushi running things. Yeah. And kind of going back to your point on the use of eunuchs, I remember reading Harry Miller's book, and he mentions that there was this random steely in Beijing that was written by a literati that was actually praising this eunuch, very infamous eunuch, Wei Zhongxian. And he kind of yeah. tells us that history is written by the victors. And because the literati ultimately came out on top, a lot of their views on Wei Zhongxian has been skewed. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that's the problem is that with the way Chinese history is written, right? They want heroes and villains, they want scapegoats. Wan Li becomes a very convenient scapegoat for the Qing. And I think one of the reasons that happens is because, remember, you know, the Qing fall and Chongzheng kills himself. And so the Qing come through, when they come in, they're putting forth this narrative that they're avenging Chongzheng's death at the hands of Li Zicheng and the peasant rebels. So they can't really make him look bad. And Tianqi really, he didn't have much to recommend himself as a ruler either, but there wasn't a lot of perceived agency for him either. So then Wan Li becomes the one you blame, right? He had reigned the longest. His reign is at the beginning of Nurhachi's rise. And so Wan Li becomes this convenient scapegoat, again, connecting to the Donglin. And remember, a lot of these people that are writing in the Ming Shi, which is written in the early Qing, 
right? They were connected familially in many cases to Donglin adherents. And so maybe some of their ancestors were purged or whatever by Wei Zhongshan or some of these others. But then Wan Li becomes the person who allowed this all to happen in the first place. So he was sufficiently removed to be the scapegoat for the Ming as a whole. And then that becomes a nice neat narrative. You're not really blasting Chongzhen, you're blasting the earlier guy for his failings, right? Chongzhen's the martyr. He killed himself because all the, the stuff that was laid at his table. Yeah, but despite this negative view of Wan Li, his early reign, at least on the military front, was pretty successful. And you mentioned the three great campaigns, Bozhou, Ningxia, and Korea. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that to listeners who might not know what the three great campaigns of the Wanli reign were. Sure, sure. So essentially, they get grouped together as the Wanli, Sandajung, or three great campaigns by writers in the decades after they actually happen. So there are a series of military engagements that take place simultaneously from the late 1580s until uh, 1600. And so the three campaigns, in terms of chronology, actually the first one that emerges is the so-called Miao Rebellion of Yang Yinglung in uh, Bozhou, which is in modern Sichuan province, as Sichuan and Guizhou. And that starts in 1587. And then in 1592, there's a troop mutiny out in Ningxia in northwest China in what's Gansu today. And that starts in 15, spring of 1592, which is right around the time that the Japanese under Toyotomi Hideyoshi launch an invasion of Korea with the aim of conquering the Ming. So basically, it starts, they sort of start in 1587, but from 1592 on, you've got simultaneous military campaigns taking place in three very disparate corners of the empire, right? the northwest, southwest, and the northeast, effectively. And so they end up kind of getting linked together by later historians because the Ming eventually win them all, but also they're fought simultaneously. Wan Li is the sort of supreme military commander as the emperor. And a lot of the same military figures are connected with suppressing them. And then they're also interrelated in the sense of how the Ming decide to prioritize their enemies. And so it's interesting that initially... When the Japanese invade Korea, one of the reasons they're able or possible reasons they're able to do so well is because the Ming troops that normally would have been stationed on the Korean border had been transferred to the Northwest to put down that mutiny. That's Lee Rusong and his compatriots and who would normally be stationed in the Northeast. They were sent to the Northwest to put down that uprising, which meant that there wasn't a ready supply of ready Ming army right there to knock out or prevent the Japanese from invading as fast as they did. And so that's one of the reasons why the main Ming force, which comes to aid Korea, doesn't go into Korea until the winter, early winter of 1593, because they are putting down the Ningxia mutiny, which takes six months or whatever from the spring of 1592 until fall, like September, October 1592, they finally put it down, transfer all those troops back to the Northeast, along with others that are recruited and they move into Korea. And then meanwhile, the rebellion of Bojo, which is actually quite large, but because it is distant, it's sort of put on the back burner by the Ming court. They're like, okay, this isn't a real threat, an existential threat to the empire. This is something that we can kind of contain and then deal with down the road. Although interestingly enough, the ringleader of that uprising, a guy named Yang Yinglung, offers at one point to take troops to Korea to fight on behalf of the Ming as a way to basically not be executed. And he's like, well, I'm going to lead troops and I'll give you, you know, 10,000 soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll go to Korea. 
And when you read dispatches between the Ming officials in Beijing and those in Korea, they talk about this projected force that never actually come from Yang Yinglong, although there are other forces from Southwest China, Sichuan and stuff who end up in Korea including Liu Ting's force. And Liu Ting, Big Sword Liu, is a major figure in Korea. He later becomes the main military commander who puts down the rebellion in Bojo. And of course, he dies fighting Nurhachi in, in the Battle of Sarhu in 1619. So he's a sort of connecting thread figure in all of these. And some of his other close associates were also involved in the different campaigns. A guy named Chun Lin, for example, who's very prominent in the Korean War and also in Bojo is an artillery expert. And the two of them work together quite often in their military campaigns. So what's interesting, like for me, when I first started doing research into this period, I had read the Cambridge History of China, which you know, Ray Huang chapter, which kind of talks about the three campaigns. And he says, ah, oh, you know, they were kind of overblown. They weren't really that important. The successes were trumped up. But I think it's because he looked at them with a preconceived notion that was grounded in his idea that the Ming was in decline. If you really understand early modern military history and how early modern militaries operated, the Ming actually comes off quite well, logistically, technologically, organizationally. Yeah, I mean, there are desertions, there are problems with supplies, there are issues with uh, ammunition and cannon efficiency and things like this. But that was not a problem that was unique to the Ming in terms of how they operate. I mean, the fact that they were able to defeat the Japanese who were, you know, by most accounts, one of the most sophisticated militaries in the world in the late 1590s is quite impressive. And they were able to project power into the Korean peninsula and then to various corners of the empire. I mean, Bojo is very far away and they mobilized over 200,000 troops when they finally put down that uprising in uh, 1600. And the final campaign, when they finally decide to devote their full power to it, takes three months and involves over 200,000 troops. And so to me, that's not the mark of an empire that's crumbling and can't get its stuff together. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think scholars have really, when they talk about the late Ming, they talk about how its military has deteriorated, how it was so poor because its finances couldn't keep up with military pay. But then when you look at these campaigns, the Ming was able to send tens of thousands, and as you said, you know, 200,000 in one instance to the front and then support them all logistically, that is, they definitely could mobilize troops and they had the money to pay for that. Yeah, and certainly up until, you know, the early 1600s, the money is still there. You know, Zhang Zhujiang had built up this silver reserve. So they've got the money in the coffers and the Koreans foot part of the bill in Korea. They help pay and feed the troops and stuff there. And the actual prices, I mean, one of the common canards, which you see repeated, it's in the old Fairbank, Reichauer, Craig textbook, and everybody just kind of quotes that as saying that the Ming bankrupted itself defending Korea, and that's why the army you know, declined because they had no money after that. But that's wrong because the amount, according to the actual sources, the Ming spent a total of 12 million tails of silver on all three campaigns combined. The annual revenue of the empire is about 35 million, so that's a third of one year's revenue. And this is spread out over eight years. So that was not what bankrupted the Ming. It was not those campaigns. If you look at how much money they were spending in the uh, 1620s and 30s against the Qing, the figures are much higher than what they spent in the Wanli reign. So uh, that is just not true. Now, one of the things they do realize is that they need to bring more money in. And that's one of the reasons why Wan Li sends out the eunuch tax collectors, because he knows that a lot of the officials are hiding their money. And the only way to get them is to circumvent the bureaucracy and send in the eunuch thugs. I mean, so that's essentially what he does. Uh, but yeah, that revenue thing, I don't buy at all. 
the argument that the Korean War and the others bankrupted the Ming because it did not. I mean, and even later, they're bringing in pretty large amounts of money until the very end. Yeah, and I think recently, or not recently, I think maybe it was 10 years ago, I um, forgot the exact date, but this Taiwanese scholar uses the Wanli Kuai Lu, which is his accountant book for the Wanli reign. He comes to the same conclusion as you, was that up until the early 1600s, the Ming's financial situation was actually very good. It wasn't until after the 1600s when it started to crater and then all hell broke loose. Yeah, and that's connected to, as I talk about in the second book, right, that's connected to global climate change, to natural disasters. I mean, there's a variety of things that contribute to that, that eventually overwhelm the Ming state. You know, I tell my students, for example, you know, there was no FEMA for the Ming dynasty, right? And so just look at how much trouble modern states have dealing with hurricanes, or other natural disasters. With all the technology and resources we have in modern states, and look at how awful it can be. So let's go back 400 years with primitive communications and things like that. Now, how would we expect the Ming to respond better than we did to Katrina or something? Yeah, yeah. Especially when we consider that this was a period of the so-called Little Ice Age, right? So there was this global climate change, and definitely the Ming was not spared. But kind of going back to the Japanese invasion of Korea, or known as the Imjin War, which was fought between 1592 and 1598. I mean, in your book, you call this the Great East Asian War, right? Because it involved China, involved Korea, involved Japan, and also people from the outskirts, for example, the Aboriginal chieftains in the Southwest offered to send troops. I think at one point, the Southeast Asian states like Siam offered to send troops, Norhachi offered to send troops. So this was really a global, or at least global in the sense of East Asia, right? A war. But it was also a gunpowder war. And when you consider the Japanese having just concluded over a century of civil war and they mastered the use of the archivist from the Europeans, and you also noted that the Ming was also using a lot of gunpowder weapons. And I noticed in recent years through your scholarship and also through the work of, for example, Tonio Andrade, there has been this renewed emphasis on looking at how the Ming, instead of talking about decline, they're looking into the Ming's use of gunpowder, advanced gunpowder weapons that either they, they borrowed from the Europeans or they developed natively. So can you tell us about some of these weapons that the Ming used in combat against the Japanese in Korea and elsewhere, and how effective were these gunpowder weapons in combat? One of the big things about the Ming was the variety of weapons that they employed and deployed, right? So, yeah, I mean, the Korean turtle ships, for example, get a lot of press, obviously, in Korea and elsewhere. But if you look at Ming documents from the same period, the Chohai Tudian, and oh, what is that one from 1611? There's the military encyclopedia, the major, there's another one, Sansai Tuway. So if you look at these encyclopedias from the Ming and from this other period, they also had you know ships with guns on them, like that look a lot like the turtle boats. So they're using them on sea. They're using artillery of a variety of different sizes. And that's one of the big things that really impresses the Japanese. And, and Lee Rusong himself actually says this right at one point when he's meeting with King Sonjo of Korea. He says, you know, one of the reasons I'm able to beat the Japanese is because my cannon have greater range and more power than the little guns that the Japanese use. And his Japanese were using primarily the uh, so-called arquebus guns. But they, they had a few kind of small like hand cannons and things like that. The Ming and the Koreans had more heavy artillery, and they had a greater variety of weaponry. And so it wasn't all just artillery, right? They were also using more traditional weapons, pole arms and crossbows and, you know, regular bows and things like this. 
So it was a combination of different things that they were using. And that's why, I mean, the Japanese were impressed by the firepower. And I think it's telling that as the war goes on, the Japanese are less, they don't want to engage in sort of open field battles. They prefer to be in sieges where they can sort of negate some of the advantages that the uh, Sino-Korean allies have in firepower. They kind of redesign the Korean fortresses or build their own fortresses, which were somewhat connected to the development of gunpowder in Japan. So they're sort of similar to the Renaissance fortress, right, the stars and things like this. So they get angles of fire and, and that sort of thing to try to negate the bigger guns of the Chinese in particular. And then, but they never come up with a solution for the sea battles. Right? Japanese are never able to counter the supremacy of the Ming and the Koreans at sea. And that's vital because the combination of the Chinese and Korean sea power and the righteous guerrillas of Korea, the Weebyong in Southwest Korea, prevent Japan from going around the peninsula and being able to supply their troops by sea on the Western side, right? They got to go overland. And so that becomes quite important in the whole war effort, because basically China and Korea control Bohai, or the Yellow Sea, right? They control that area. And that's really important for them because they can go by land and water in terms of uh, supplies, troops, et cetera. And I think that's one of the kind of key elements of that. And the Japanese commanders themselves talk about, they talk about Ming firepower and then Ming resources in particular. That's what impresses Hideyoshi's commanders the most. It's not necessarily the fighting prowess of the Ming, although there is, they make some references to that, but they really talk about the resources. Like we just cannot keep, you know, we just don't have the resources to compete. And they tell him that. They send letters back to Japan saying that they've got more resources than we have. We cannot win. And the other thing the Ming does is they put up a bunch of fortresses along the coast, probably from kind of central, the central coast, maybe maybe Zhejiang up into Shandong. And I know at least some of them survived because some of them during the Ming Manchu War, they make reference to some of these places having been built during the fear of the, the Japanese invasion. So I know some of them were built in the 1590s or still there 30 years later or whatever. So... Going a bit further in time than to the Ming-Manchu War, I think one of the most famous battles that was fought was the Battle of Ningyuan, where Yuan Chongguan uses cannons to defeat the Manchus and perhaps even kill Norhachi. I think a lot of people mentioned that these were European cannons. So did the Ming buy them from the Europeans or did they reverse engineer these European cannons? How were these European cannons used? Both. <laughs> they bought some. They, as Tony Andrade talks about, they would literally scavenge shipwrecks for European cannons and then pull them out, clean them off and use them. They hired Jesuit advisors and then other random people, like they would hire these random adventurers from Macau or whatever, Guangzhou, to help them as cannon casters and, and artillery experts and things like this. And then they would make their own. So it was really a kind of hodgepodge combination of things. And it was amazing how much experimentation and stuff they did. And I might work on this in a future article because I've, I've since I wrote that book, I've acquired some other primary sources from like Sun Chanzong and some of these other guys who were involved in these defenses against the Manchus. And there were just tons of ideas out there that weren't always fully implemented in part because of the really charged factional environment of the late Ming court that, you know, guys were constantly getting thrown into jail or executed or anything. I mean, I often joke that the Ming kill more Ming commanders than the Manchus did. So that actually undermines Ming efforts more than anything else, or, you know, Chong Jun's ability to kill his own commanders. 
And so, yeah, you know, it was amazing the variety of different things they worked on. And there were even Sun Lai Chen recently uh, noted that they built a few experimental Renaissance style fortresses in like central China, you know, that look like the European star fortresses that completely independently came up with this. So that's out there. And in, in general, I think one of the interesting things about that whole period, which I talk about in the, the second two books, is how militarized the entire Ming becomes. So all these backwater cities in the middle of, you know, Sichuan or Huguang or whatever have guns. I mean, they have guns to defend their walls and stuff. I mean, a cannon and stuff. It's amazing the level of militarization. Then when the Ming falls, like everybody just builds a stockade and hides in the hills and shoots at anybody who walked by. But um, it's a really fascinating situation that has parallels in the late Qing. Wow, that's really interesting to think that the Chinese were also developing star forts and star fortresses and using gunpowder weapons to defend their cities and, and forts. I mean, if you look at European historiography, I think going on the arguments of Charles Tilly is that, well, you have war and that creates state building because you need to fund the military, you need to develop all these gunpowder weapons. So really, we kind of see that in the Ming as well, don't we? This experimentation and the development of new technology. But unfortunately, as you said, the factionalism prevented it from going anywhere. And that's what I, you know, one of my key points, and that's not really new, right? It's, you know, factionalism. The Ming defeat was more political than it was military. And, you know, exacerbated, obviously, by the social and climate and everything else that was going on, right? The natural disaster. I think independently, the Ming could have probably beaten the Manchus or the peasant rebels if it wasn't at the same time. But it was. Right? So there you go. But I think they could have defeated either of those opponents if they weren't simultaneous. Right. But they keep shifting. And that's one of the things you see when you're reading the documents is that Chong Jun will not commit to a plan because he's, he's hypersensitive to being criticized, but he's also hypersensitive to not doing anything. And so he's constantly overreacting and making snap judgments and never gives anyone long enough to properly implement a plan. And it seems like whatever move he makes, it's the wrong one. Whatever's advice he takes, it's the wrong person. Yuan Chonghuan is great, but then he gets framed, gets killed. Mao Wenlong gets executed, but that was by Yuan. But um, who's the other guy? Uh, Sun, uh, Sun Chuanting. You know, at the very end of the Ming, he gets pulled out of jail. They put him in command. Chongzhen doesn't listen to him. He gets killed in battle with Lisa Chung because he has to obey orders that he doesn't want to obey, but he does. I mean, it's a great story. It's wonderful reading, but it's, it's tragic the way it all kind of plays out. Yeah. So if the Ming had been so successful under the Wanli dealing with these internal rebellions and mutinies and with the Japanese, what were some of the factors that led to their defeat as Sarahu? I mean, this was a very major defeat. The Wanli Emperor committed so many troops. The Ming army was many times bigger, and they were led by these experienced commanders. Why did they lose? Again, it's sort of tactical. Yeah, they make some tactical blunders, right? The main problem is that they split their forces. So... Even though they had a numerical advantage of roughly three to two, it wasn't as great as some of the Manchu Qing sports would say it was. It was roughly 90, the Ming had about 90,000, the Qing had about 60 total. So it's not that great of a numerical advantage. The Ming were not as well versed as they should have been in the uh, terrain. The commanders were jealous of each other. So one of them leaves early to try to gain the glory of defeating the Manchus. They don't properly coordinate their activities. And even later, had they regrouped properly, right? There's an issue where they're crossing the river and they get hit. And then some of the forces cross and some of them don't. 
so you know so there were some tactical blunders some leadership issues poor coordination that kind of undermined them then yang how of course gets blamed for all of it but uh it's just a series of things but even that even as bad as that was that was by no means the end of the war right i mean the Ming, even suffering that defeat had there been better more coordinated leadership and cohesive planning over the next four or five years they still probably could have wiped out their hatch but that didn't happen right and i think that's the big difference in this period right when you're looking at that first decade of the war i think you know, the leadership really matters right wan lee dies not too long after sarhui so he dies and so then you've got son and only his son only reigns for what a month and then you've got the tianqi emperor coming in and so bam you've got these competing factions in beijing whereas in manchuria you've got nerhachi in the previous decade remember he had taken out his brother and various other potential rivals to his power among the jurchens were more or less eliminated so he was in a much more you know dominant position as a leader to kind of pick and choose what he wanted to do and the other thing to keep in mind is right the the conquest of the ming was not the goal of nerhachi it probably wasn't even the goal of hong taiji until very late you know some people argue that there was never their goal it was chinese advisors who convinced them to go in and do that right to take advantage of what had happened what they wanted was basically a kind of independent empire in northeast asia that's something else that people tend to read back because of what happens later to think that oh yeah he all along they were plotting this it was a stage by stage thing but it wasn't i mean they were much more concerned with their you know maintaining hegemony in northeast asia and you know some of the raids launched against the ming in the 1620s are because they're starving because they have bad harvests and everything else and so they need food and other resources so that's what they're taking from china and in some cases later slaves but um it's not because they've got this master plan that we're going to conquer the ming that really is a very late development i see so this is kind of a little bit of a counterfactual question but i think you mentioned that if the ming had focused on one or the other they could have defeated either the manchus or or the peasant rebels but ultimately they didn't focus on one or the other right they were fighting a two front war and i think this is something that a lot of people don't realize is that the ming was fighting a two front war and there has been this heavy emphasis on the manchus as a catalyst and the reason for the ming's fall so first of all do you believe that to be the case who in your opinion was more responsible the rebels or the manchus and this is the counterfactual question is that was there any moment when the ming might have won this two front war was it ever a possibility that could have happened Yes. Okay, so first of all, I you know when counterfactuals are always fun even if you can't prove it, right? But that's why they're counterfactual. So yeah, I think for one, it, to me I I've used Jiang Kai-shek as a comparative example here, right? The peasant rebels are the disease of the heart and the Manchus are the disease of the skin, right? So the peasant rebels were in China. And militarily, they're not, you know, person for person, right? Militarily, the peasant rebels aren't the quality or the caliber of a Manchu warrior. right we know this they're not as organized whatever but the problem with them is there's even though there were certain leaders you know it's only relatively late that li zicheng and jiang chenzhong emerged as the two main leaders right there are a bunch of other leaders running around for most of the 1630s and gradually they get picked off either by the ming or by the other peasant rebels so that's one of the real problems with dealing with them is that just cuz you killed one leader doesn't really mean anything right there are plenty more out there and they can easily meld into the countryside 
They can mix with the general population. It's very, very, as the Qing show later, right? It's notoriously difficult to put down a peasant rebellion in China. And so I think they were the more dangerous threat. The Manchus could somewhat be contained in the Northeast. It wasn't like the Great Wall was that huge of a deterrent, but it helped. And especially because the Ming still had a fair number of Mongol allies, at least into the mid-1630s, when Lignan Khan is defeated by the Qing. And he's sort of the last really powerful Mongol Khan that is on the Ming side. Although there were some until the very end, right? The Ming loyalists and Sichuan have Mongols fighting with them against the Manchus. So it wasn't like all the Mongols just switched to the Qing side in 1635 or whatever. But I do think that the moment, you asked what the moment would be, I would say probably early 1630s. Again, if you want to throw counterfactuals out there, okay, let's say they don't execute Yuan Chongguan. Maybe he and Sun Chunzong and some of these other guys can stabilize that Northeast frontier. And uh, with their Western guns and their, their logistics and stuff, maybe then, if you want to keep throwing counterfactuals out there, maybe then the Wuqiao mutiny doesn't happen. And of course, with the Wuqiao mutiny, right, Kong Yuda and Gong Zhongming and these guys defect, eventually defect to the Manchus and bring them firearms and firearms know-how and all these other things. But if that doesn't happen, who knows, right? So I think the early 1630s for sure if there'd been a little more stability in that Northeast and they had kind of tightened that down, at that point, the peasant rebellions aren't that huge yet. So then you could devote more resources to properly assessing and dealing with the peasant situation. So that would be my counterfactual of when it might have happened. I mean, later than that, it's a little tougher to say, but to me, that would be the point at which you really could. I'm not going to say that you know, when killing Yuan Chongguan was the straw, although some of them, the Ming Shur actually says that, that once he died, it was over. But I do think it was significant. Yeah, and reading the narrative of the war against the Manchus and the peasants, it really seems that the Chongzhen Emperor, I mean, he comes to the throne as a very well-meaning guy trying to arrest the decline of the Ming, and he's, he has all these grandiose visions, but he really was a poor leader for talking about leadership, and, and all these strategic mistakes, tactical mistakes, and political infighting really kind of, he's at the heart of everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was a paranoid micromanager. But in his defense, we got to remember, he was, what, 16 when he took over, when he took the throne? So as much as we can criticize him, imagine being a teenager and you've just been put on the throne of the biggest empire in the world. And at the beginning of your reign, like, this is what you're dropped into. But yeah, he definitely lacked in, in terms of leadership and the ability to kind of stick with a decision and kind of follow through. I mean, because some of the appointments he made were good, but then he doesn't follow through. And it seems like the only people that he ends up supporting long-term are the real kind of sycophonic incompetence. And mm -hmm. the, the people who really know what they're doing eventually offend him or offend somebody else enough to get punished or jailed or executed or whatever. And I mean, it's amazing because there were a lot of really competent guys, Lu Xiang, Xiang, Su Chuanting, and who end up dying along the way for various mistakes made by others. Yeah, and I think in, in this story of the Ming's collapse and the death of Chongzhen, one of the central figures is, of course, Wu Sangui, who has this elite army stationed in Shanghai Guan, Shanghai Pass, where he is facing off against the Manchus. And his defection opens the gate for the Manchus to enter China. So why did he defect? I know there's a story version about him and his concubine. Yeah, Chen Yuanyuan, yeah. Yeah, is that true? Or is there another reason for his defection? 
that's the fun part, right? And the two of them were very close for their whole lives. And in fact, have you ever been to Kunming? No, I have not. Because in Kunming, which is where like they end up going, right, later, there's a garden, there's a temple, and there's a Chun Yuan Yuan garden there. And there's a statue of her, and they've got all these artifacts, like Wu Sangwei's sword and one of his spears. And there's this poem written by Gu Yan Wu or one of those literati, a poem about Chun Yuan Yuan and how beautiful she was. Because what happens is when Wu revolts, when he decides to start the Sanfan Rebellion, she goes to this monastery and eventually becomes a nun. And so that's where this is, it's in, and it's in Kunming. And actually, interestingly enough, also there is there's a lake where he executed Yongli, the last Ming claimant, where he strangled him. And then later, when he goes to revolt against the Qing, he feels bad about it. So he erects a shrine to the Ming and to Yongli to uh, apologize as he's doing this. And actually, incidentally, I'll do a self-plug here. My next book is about Wu Sangwei and the Sunfan Rebellion. The one after the book I'm writing now, which is a biography of Zhuang But as soon as my Zhuang biography is done, then I'll go back to the Ming. But anyhow, I think the main reason he ends up defecting is power calculus. His uncle, Zudasho, had defected a few years before, and several other relatives had served the Qing, and so it becomes a power calculus for Wu. And I think he really thought that he was just going to get a better deal from them than he would from like kind of look at assessing his options, you know, sort of a free agent in the sense of, okay, resource wise, these guys can give me things that I can't get from the declining, you know, sort of Ming scenario there. And I think that's why he does it. Now, um, of course, there's the story about Li Zichang and Wu's father and his concubine, right? Because Li kills the father too, um, Wu Chang. And leads to trying to execute them as well. But I think it's more a, a matter of calculus than because of the girlfriend, although there may have been something to that too, because clearly the two of them stay together after that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think one of the fun parts of that story is what happened to the crown prince, right? And a lot of the television dramas, apparently, uh, Wu Sangui adopts the uh, kid and, and hides him. But I am very excited for your next book, Wu Sangui and, and the Sanfan Rebellion. I think that was a very fascinating period in, in Chinese history as well. So very much looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm really excited about doing that. I just got sucked into this book on Zhao Zongtang, which has been great, but it's required a whole different level of research. And just too much material on the Qing. But it's yeah. easier to do Ming stuff. When you get, especially when you do 19th century, because you've got all these newspapers and everything, there's just so much... And Zhuangzong's collected works are ridiculously long. So uh, the Ming collected works are easier to read. They're shorter. There's not nearly as much stuff. Yeah. When you compare it to the Qing stuff, it, it kind of puts the length of the Ming works into perspective. But given all these exciting conclusions and exciting research that you've put forth, as a final concluding question, what can the history of the late Ming military tell us about Chinese history more generally? Oh, good question. A couple of things. For one, I really think that it's beyond high time for military historians, global military historians, to pay attention to what's going on in China. And it still gets too dismissed in these sort of broad surveys of global military history and stuff. And there are people, you know, obviously, Tony Andrade has been great in getting that out there. Wayne Lee, who's a prominent Western historian, has really embraced as Jeremy Black, a few others are starting to do that, which is great. But I think really it's fascinating to look at Chinese developments 
and how they are similar to global developments. And certainly for the early Ming, you know, David Robinson with this Eurasian connection stuff that he's doing in China, it's not that exotic. It's not that different. And to look at not just military history, but imperial history, right? And I know that's not popular in China, right? Because I don't want to say China's empire, probably because that has implications that affect the PRC and their self-perception and the way that they portray Chinese history and, and all that. But the bottom line is it, it, these were empires, right? And they act like empires. They behave like empires. They project power. They use a variety of resources. They use the military. They um, engage in different types of behavior to extend their borders, to you know, raise tax revenues, whatever. And I think that's one important thing we can learn from like studying the late Ming and its connection to global events and trends and things like that. Obviously, sort of universal events too, like we've talked about earlier, Little Ice Age of the uh, 17th century is an interesting point of comparison. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this, and this comes, I recently did a chapter on grand strategy for uh, Cambridge History of Global Strategy volume. And one of the editors told me, she goes, wow, she goes, you have so much more material than some of these other people have because of the written record. And because the Chinese record is just so much better documented. So things like strategy, like we can get at what their strategy was because we have documents. Whereas, you know, for the vast majority of the world, even a lot of Europe, they don't have that for the 16th century, 17th century, that kind of thing. I mean, not to the detail that we have. And so I think it's important for China historians to imprint that on historians of other places and say, hey, you can learn from us and you can actually see the kinds of things that would have comparative use to you as historians, you know, understanding questions of leadership, questions of state building, questions of resource allocation, technological innovation, dissemination, social dislocation, militarization. I mean, all of these things are stuff that aren't unique to China, but we've got so much more data that you can really get at it and, and provide, I think, some really useful insights for global historians working, you know, in other areas. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And it is definitely very exciting to see how the field is changing with a lot of these new scholarship coming out, tying China to the broader world, and also looking into all these different connections and links. But thank you so much, Professor Swope, for the interview. I mean, you've given just so much wonderful information. This is definitely very, very interesting, both to me and also to our listeners. And I definitely hope that in the future, when you completed your book on Wu Sangui, and even Zhuo Zhongtang, I think we would love to have you back to talk about these figures. I mean, these are very monumental figures in, in Chinese history, and both of them actually had a lot of impact. So we welcome you to come back and talk to our listeners on them and how they have affected Chinese history. Oh, absolutely. I would love to. It's always, it's always fun to talk about these guys and these figures who are, as you mentioned, just so huge in China and so relatively unknown outside of China. That's part of the fun is to bring this. Obviously, General, General Zhao started with the chicken thing. That's literally how I decided to write that book because everybody's always asked me about General's chicken. And uh, it sort of spiraled from there. But Wu will be fun too. Yeah, so thank you once again.